from the neck upwards. Her head of high-piled powdered hair, adorned with pearls, feathers and flowers, appeared above the ground in company with the less attractive head of Dr. Graham himself. She was also required to demonstrate the pride of the establishment, the celestial bed for the cure of barrenness. This was contained in the third chamber of the Temple of Health. Crystal glass pillars enshrined the costly electrical apparatus for reviving youth and strength. The magnetic celestial bed was built on glass legs and was provided with the richest and most seductive hangings and the most exquisitely trimmed linen. It was covered by an immense high-arching pavilion guarded by gilt dragons, and it bore a Latin inscription to the effect that Unhappy is he that hath not his quiver full. Nearby stood a beautiful figure of fecundity, holding her cornucopia and surrounded by reclining children, and an electric celestial glory mellowed by stained glass windows shed a dim and solemn light on the scene, while strains of majestic melody filled the air. Indeed, Dr. Graham believed strongly in the power of music. His lecture on married love, delivered by the rosy, the gigantic, the stupendous goddess of health, the blooming priestess of the temple, advised couples to cultivate the habit of singing together in bed from the first hours of their honeymoon. The marriages of most would be fruitful if they followed his precepts and drank his divine balsam, available at only one guinea a bottle. And should that fail, there was the celestial bed, connected to a hidden cylinder which supplied liberal quantities of magnetico-electric fire. Advance booking for the bed was advisable at the price of fifty pounds, and for a time Dr. Graham's box office was busy. Though, alas, it is to be feared that for every one married couple who booked the bed, a dozen wantons and mere votaries of pleasure booked it as well. Was Emma, in fact, ever the goddess of health? Blooming and rosy she certainly was, and a big girl for her fifteen or sixteen years, but hardly gigantic. That description would apply later. She had a goddess-like grace, a bright smile and a sweet voice in speech and song. And perhaps for a time she was the vocalist mentioned by someone who, visiting the temple in 1780, heard a woman invisible warbling to clarionets on the stairs. Never mind whether I was or not. It was around about this time I met with a rich young baronet, Sir Harry Featherstone, who took a fancy to me and set me up in style at his fine house called Up Park in Sussex. There I stayed for a year and lived like a lady and was courted by all Sir Harry's friends. There was George Romney, the artist. He was quite bewitched by my beauty, he said. And then there was the Honourable Charles Greville, brother to the Earl of Warwick. Very handsome, very serious, very fond of me. But for all their courtship, I was true to Sir Harry. Not that he believed it, more's the pity. For when I found I was to have a child, he turned me out of doors, bag and baggage, and baggage was what he called me. 
So whom should I turn to but Greville, that had always been so kind? I wrote to him, telling him what a pickle I was in. My dear Emily, I do not make apologies for Sir Harry's behaviour to you. I own I never expected better from him. If everything fails, if you mean to have my protection, I must first know from you that you are clear of every connection. I shall then be free to dry up the tears of my lovely Emily and to give her comfort. As to the child, its mother shall obtain kindness from me, and it shall never want. Yesterday did I receive your kind letter. It put me in some spirits, for believe me, I'm almost distracted. What shall I do? Good God, what shall I do? I have wrote seven letters to Sir Harry, and no answer. I have not a farthing to bless myself with.